they've um, probably been replaced by, by the internet. You know, you can send messages there much more easily. But there was a time when, when some Christians at home used to have um, a wee promise box or a promise jar. Um, they were <clears throat> tiny bits of paper that were rolled up in a scroll. And you got a pair of tweezers. And each day you could go into the wee box or the wee jar and pull out one of these scrolls and open it up and there would be a word of scripture in it for you. Um, I always had my reservations about them actually because very often it was just plucking a word of scripture out of context. Um, I also, you know, wondered, there's, there's also a bias, isn't there? Because when people make things like that, they're only going to put in the scriptures that sound quite affirming, you know. <clears throat> I, did, I did think for a time that I might actually set up a business doing alternative promise boxes, you know. <clears throat> so that you would get your tweezers and you would go in and you would pull out uh, one and it would open it up and it would be a verse of scripture maybe something like Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. I thought that would be a good one. In fact, I thought I could have a lot of fun making up 365 of them, and <clears throat> but they wouldn't sell, so I didn't go into business doing that. The first verse of Romans chapter 8 is a verse that might well be found in a promise box. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The last two verses of the chapter also might find their way into the promise box. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in between um, verse 1 and verse 38, there's another 36 verses Are these 36 verses not just as important? Are these 36 verses not just as inspired as verse 1 and verses 38 and 39? Of course they are. And in these 36 verses, there is more said about the good and glory of being a Christian. There's the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit with us. There are verses that speak about adoption into the family of God, being sons and daughters of the living God, co-heirs with Christ. But there's also a note that might sound less attractive, that of suffering. Verse 17, the verse before Morag started our reading, leads into that. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And then verse 18, Paul's affirmation that he believes the glory is far greater than the sufferings in the present. Now the glory that is to be revealed, uh, verse 18, 
That's not glory in the sense of one day, guys, you're all going to be glorious and you're all going to be shining so brightly. The future is bright and you will be glistening too. A bit like the folks at the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll be, you'll, and it's not even the idea that you're going to have a resplendent halo around your heads. That's not what it means by glory. What does he mean by glory in that verse? He means by glory... We will be doing what we were meant to be doing, what we were made for doing. The glory is the long-awaited rule of God's people over God's creation. God had intended to rule the world through people, Genesis chapter 1. And we spoiled that through sin. But here is a promise that we're going to arrive at the very thing that we were made for. It's the fulfilling of purpose. That is what's our glory and glorious. We'll use the word in that sense in other contexts. <clears throat> the golfer who hits a, a glorious drive off the tee. We mean it's one that goes far. One that goes straight down the fairway. It doesn't go into the rough. A glorious shot. We use, we use it all sorts of contexts. We use glorious in terms of doing the right thing, fulfilling purpose, reaching potential. And that's the sense of glory here. It's, the word is the same sense for it as it's used in Psalm 8, where the psalmist says that, God, you have made people a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And how did he do that? The psalmist goes on. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. You know what he's saying? People were crowned with glory and honor. What was that glory and honor? It was their rule over creation. They were made for that. They were purposed for that. But when we sinned, we spoiled it. And the glory then is the long-awaited rule of the redeemed humans over the God's new creation. It's not that we die and then go to some spiritual heaven hanging around somewhere. There's a new creation to come, a bodily resurrection. And in that new creation, we will receive the glory of being back to what we were made for. That's what God's rule is like, and that's glorious. Now, God's rule then is not to be thought of as some kind of autocrat, you know, the way that we sometimes hear of people ruling in this world, exterminating all the opposition, crushing those who think differently. Nor is God's rule some kind of machine-like thing. You know, he's got the whole thing set up, and we're all being organized and controlled. How does God rule? God rules in the way that he has shown us in and through Christ. A way of sharing, of identify, of serving, of taking the pain and blame of others on our shoulders. In verse 29, we are told that we are to be conformed to the image of his Son, conformed to the image of Jesus. We are to love as he loved, serve as he served. And inevitably, that takes us down a road where there is some suffering. Suffering comes out of the loving heart and anger that's against all of God's good purposes. It's the suffering of rejecting all that is not right in God's world. 
And in this passage that Morag read in Romans 8, the, the suffering is expressed in a series of groanings. Firstly, in verses 19 to 22, all creation is groaning. Now, of course, there's a lot of wonderful things in the world, isn't there? There are things that we enjoy and appreciate. And if you go on to kind of these, some of these documentary challenges, uh, channels on TV, you see some extraordinarily beautiful things, some extraordinarily wonderful things. It's like, how does that all fit together just so wonderfully and, and beautifully? And yet at the same time, creation's out of sorts. And we have earthquakes and tsunamis and drought and storms and so on. There's a frustration, verse 20, because it's not right. There's decay, verse 21. And with decay, we might include the threats of climate change. And so it's, it's pains, like, like in childbirth, he, he says in verse 22. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It, this is sore. Yes, it's nurturing life. Yes, it's giving life in, in, in the beautiful way that the world works. But at the same time, it's not straightforward and it's not easy. Creation is groaning. And it's longing for better. As well as creation groaning, then the people of God too are groaning, verses 23 to 27. Paul, who wrote these words, knew what it was to suffer for Jesus' sake. But as well as direct opposition to the gospel, our groaning comes, verse 26, out of a sense of weakness. We have weakness here. Weakness that comes through knowing that we're not all that we could be or should be. Weakness that comes as knowing and recognizing that in the world around us, all is not as it could and should be. We groan then over our moral failures, or at least we should be. And we groan that so much is going wrong in the world. We groan because we know it's not right and things should be better. We know that this is not all that God wants and intends. And then as well as the groaning of creation and the groaning of God's people, we have verses 26 and 27, the groaning too of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who is the Spirit of Jesus. And when Jesus was on earth, we, we saw too, did we not, Jesus being out of sorts with what was going on in the world and the world's events. We saw Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. We saw Jesus expressing his frustration over Jerusalem and its, and its disbelief. We saw Jesus sometimes getting frustrated with the disciples being so slow. Everything wasn't easy. Everything wasn't straightforward. And that was shown in the way that Jesus lived. And now the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, feels that too. And in particular, in these verses 26 and 27, the Apostle talks about our weakness in prayer and how the Spirit helps us with that. Not, notice, not by giving us the right things to say, but by gathering up what we feel, that what we ache over, what the Spirit himself feels and aches over. Now, this is where the church 
should stand in times like these. This is where the church should stand in our war-torn, cost-of-living rising, pandemic-shaped world. It's not for the church to be sitting on the sidelines saying, well, God's doing this to you because of that or because of the next thing, or trying to give easy explanations. Nor are we simply to join in with others in saying, oh, I don't know what to make of it all. There seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. Don't know where all this is going to end up. Rather, we are to be caught up in the groaning. The groaning comes from that disconnect between what's going on and what God has promised. The groaning comes from being with the, the, the muck and the mess of daily life and saying, yet God intended better, God created better, and God is going to return us to better when the, when the new earth and the new heavens come. And it's because we believe that that we can groan. If you don't believe that, you might as well just say, well, it gets better, it gets worse, who knows? There's no end, there's no purpose. We have to be painfully aware of that huge gap between the people we are now and the world we live in now and all that's going to be in God's glorious new creation. And so what the church should be doing above all in these times is praying. But it's a praying for which we don't, verse 26, have the right words. You ever think of prayer as something where you just don't have the right words? Prayer's not just asking for things, you know. It includes that. Prayer's not just saying sorry to God. It, it includes that. Prayer is also when we stand in this place of the disconnect between what is and what God has promised and agonize over that disjunction. Here in Romans 8 is a prayer of groaning protest, of agonizing over the split, the gulf between what now is and what is to come. The now but not yet of the kingdom of God, which has been a theme throughout this series, places us in this doorway to these two realities of earth today and new creation to come. And it's not a problem, it is not a failure that we don't have the right words. Because, verse 26, even the Holy Spirit doesn't have the right words. There are some times when words just don't do all that we want and need them to do. And so the church's vocation is not to give cheap answers to a world that is not asking us for answers. Rather, the church's calling is to restore a credibility to the gospel by showing the world that we get it. We understand the pain, the dislocation, the lostness. And with the Lord, we protest and rebel against it. Protesting and rebelling against it, not in some fit of pique or simply of just letting off steam. Rather, we protest and hurt and groan and agonize because we know that there is better to come. It's the picture of 
pain through childbirth that the apostle uses. Why go through with the pain? Why keep on with it? Because there's some, something that we want. Something better to come. So I was, I was confused, actually, with, with Miriam's question. I didn't know it was coming. Is the future bright? I said yes, because I was thinking of, of an ultimate future. I was thinking of new creation. I've been wrestling with Romans 8 this week. Is the future bright in terms of next week or next month? I'm maybe not as confident. I've maybe got two answers then. And that's, that's, that's where we are. And as I say, the church has too often just kind of not had anything else to say with the folks who are saying, oh, it's all gone to the dogs, it's all getting worse. We should say, no, it isn't. Ultimately, it isn't. We have to resist that. But nor should the church simply be saying, well, it's a few quick things to fix here and there that God's doing from a distance. Now, the gospel is that God and Christ got involved in this world. God and Christ wept at Lazarus' tomb. God and Christ hurt and agonized and went to the cross for more and better to come. And the context is about our working with God. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 8 is one of these verses that might well have been in the promise boxes. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Sounds fine. But if you've got one of the uh, church Bibles there um, in front of you, um, there's a footnote um, for that verse down to a couple of different ways of translating it. And ultimately, actually, nobody can prove it one way or the other. But I am drawn to one of the alternative translations in the footnote, which says this, in all things, God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. And the reason I'm drawn to that is the word for works in Romans 8.28 is, is also used a couple of times in 1 Corinthians 16 and in 2 Corinthians 6. In the first of these it says, to submit to such people and everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. And then in 2 Corinthians 6, as God's fellow workers, so that in these occasions join in the work and God's fellow workers, the, the word clearly is talking about working together, a, a kind of teamwork thing going on. And so I think in, in Romans 8.28, that essentially should be that God in all things works together with those who love him. Because that too is the context of the passage about how we are gathered up with God in fulfilling his purposes. The Holy Spirit is the one who works with Christ's people. So verse 16 um, <clears throat> in Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. In the same way, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Verse 27, and he who searches our hearts, the Spirit, knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. It's the Spirit and the people of God working together to bring things in accordance with the will of God, which, remember, that's what glory is and what glory is about. 
And so the gospel is not about an escape from our responsibilities. The gospel is not about get, getting all these burdens lifted off us. The, the gospel is about a God who is big enough to get alongside, to give us his spirit, to work in the world, to, to seek, the, to put things into practice and into place that is the calling of his kingdom, his kingdom that will finally come in that new creation. In the meantime, we know we're not there. We know we've not got there. We know we've not arrived. And so we're bit of groaning to do. I wish it was better. I wish I could do better. I wish politicians were doing better. I wish the creation was doing better and not flooding and so on. That, that's, <clears throat> that's it. But it's not a groaning that is futile. It's a groaning that has hope. For God subjected the creation in hope, verse 20. We ourselves are groaning, but verse 24, in this hope we were saved. And then in the final verses that Morag read, 29 and 30, it's God gathering up his people so that they would be glorified. Once, standing on a hill, speaking to a large group of people, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Strange thing to say, isn't it? Blessed are those who mourn. Cheers for tears. Hats off to the hurting. Hooray for the groaners. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn even when they don't have the right words to express their mourning. You see, the world will only know that there's a God who cares when they see that his church cares. And in our pandemic-dominated time, our war-torn world, our divided nation, there is enormous need for mourners and groaners. Those who truly feel the agony, but also, verse 24 of Romans 8, see the hope. That's the mourners that Jesus was blessing Those who would see things not as they could or they should be and then long, long for that better to come. And even those who are convinced, and I am, of Christ's return, and those, even those who are convinced, and I am, that Christ's return will bring in a new heaven and a new earth, even the fact that it's not happening now... <laughs> bothers us. We, we, there's a groan that comes just from, from waiting. Not that we doubt that it's going to get better. Not that we doubt that it's going to come. But in the meantime, we're stuck with this. And so we groan. Those who have a foretaste of the glory. Those who can say and show, here are the first fruits, verse 24. And who mourn the absence of more glory. Those 
are the ones that God needs in times like these. Those who walk with others in the mess and muck of life's challenges and who know that in Christ there is more and better to come. Glory is not some compensation for suffering. You know, put up with some suffering now and you'll get the prize later on. Glory is not some enticement to go through suffering. Rather, in these verses, glory is the outcome, the fruit, the consequence of Christ-like living and serving. It's the fruit and outcome of working with the Spirit of God to fulfill God's purposes. Hence, as we sang today a bit earlier, and I worry that we might miss the significance of it because it's a very jaunty tune. If you will not bear a cross, you can't wear a crown. The jaunty tune sometimes hides the significance of that. It's a, it's a, it's a profoundly Christian thought. Groaners have a home in glory land. Let us pray.